This morning, Psalm 102, one of the most unique of the psalm titles. We go from last week, a king's resolve. One of the things I love about the psalms is they're variegated um, themes from every aspect of life. God has songs for his people to sing in times of joy, in times of sorrow, in times of feasting, in times of fasting. God has given his people songs to sing to him in every and for every aspect of life. Let's begin by reading Psalm 102. A prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day that I call. For my days pass away like smoke. and My bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass that is withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness. Like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingled tears with my drink because of your indignation and anger. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity in Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord that he looked down from his holy height From heaven, the Lord looked at the earth. He heard the groans of the worshipers, prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise when peoples gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh my God, I say, Take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same Your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. 
Lord God, as we study this psalm, I just want to thank you for your condescension and your mercy to us. You are mindful that we are weak. You are mindful that man's days are few and apportioned to sorrow. And you write your word. You give it to us. We might sing to you in our sorrow, in our grief, in our loneliness, in our pain. And the God who fashioned the universe, the God who existed for eternity before and will exist for eternity afterwards, the God of all creation hears our prayer. And he is mindful of us. We rejoice in that truth, Lord God. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Psalm 102 is, I think, wrongly classified as one of the penitential psalms. Uh, The early church categorized seven of the 150 psalms as penitential And even though there's great sorrow and there's even reference to God's anger, there's not a note of repentance for sin in this psalm. Not to say the psalmist is defiant. He's simply not dealing with his sin. This is not a psalm about confessing and dealing with sin. This is is straightforward in the title. A prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. I think that's important to emphasize Because we can be tempted to think, surely this great grief and sorrow expressed in this psalm is due to one's sin. There's nothing in the psalm to indicate that. There's nothing in the psalm to indicate any particular sin or wrongdoing on the psalmist's part has accounted for his or her great sorrow. Um, But I think this psalm gives us great help. Oftentimes, I'll talk to people, trying to give them encouragement, counsel from God's word, and there can be a temptation for us to think that God's word, spiritual truths, are good for small problems. God's word, God's truths are good for small issues, but if you have real issues, if you have serious problems, then you need something else. The description of this psalmist's sorrow, I I think, absolutely would pass for clinical depression in today's day and age. We'll look at it. And God has words of comfort for that, for that type of deep despair. Um, So we're going to look at this in in three points. There's a lot of text to cover, 28 verses. Um, So we'll have to move somewhat quickly, but there's so much rich help here for us. Um, I'll highlight for you one of the major contrasts in the psalm. The psalm really is dealing with the, the shortness of life. Finding comfort in affliction from an infinite God. But notice the contrast. The psalmist has days. Verse 3, my days pass away like smoke. Verse verse 11, my days are like an evening shadow. Verse 23, he has shortened my days. Verse 24, take me not away in the midst of my days. In contrast to the psalmist's days, the Lord has Years, verse 24, you whose years endure throughout all generations, verse 27, but you are the same and your years have no end. Now the emphasis is clearly on God's eternality, but one of the ways that contrast between man's finitude and God's eternality is made is throughout this psalm. The psalmist has days, the Lord God has years. It's a, it's a nice literary touch to highlight the, the emphasis and to show you one of the overarching themes So we're just going to move through it. His complaint, his consolation, and his confidence. Uh, Let's take a look at the first 11 verses. The psalmist's complaint. And of course, we can't miss that title. 
The title is important, and, and I'm again so thankful for Pastor Daniel speaking on the authenticity, the trustworthiness of the psalm titles, because as I read through commentaries, it's evident how many of them disregard the titles as they'll talk about this being a communal prayer of the post-exilic community. It's clearly, and here's your blank, an individual prayer. If the title is to be taken seriously, and it should be taken seriously, a prayer of one, not many, one afflicted. When he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. What we have here is an individual prayer. Not that we couldn't pray this together, but in its first instance, this, this is an individual lament. It's going to make sense as it moves forward, and you're going to see the loneliness, the isolation the psalmist is experiencing. So we have an individual prayer and complaint to God. Do you know it's okay to pour out your complaints to God? You've got to do it the right way. Different people in Scripture pour out their complaints to God and get different responses. You, you don't pour out your complaint the way... See, we think of the word complain as, why did you do it this way? How much longer till we get there? He took my toy... That's not the type of complaint that we're talking about. Rather, these things have happened, and I don't like it, and I don't understand. Like, Think of bringing a complaint before a judge or registering a complaint with a police officer. Your neighbor's loud noise and... You could imagine doing that calmly and saying, you know, I, I, it's been make, I've been unable to sleep and it's just constant, nonstop noise. Could you please do something about it? It's the complaint in that fashion. And in that sense, complaints and complaints before God are common throughout Scripture. Psalm 142.2 says this, I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. So pouring out your complaint to God is pouring out your trouble, pouring out those things that bother, vex, distress you. You can do that. You can do that even while God is angry at something in your life as he is here. The psalmist speaks of God's anger towards him. We've got a redeemed person. We've got a forgiven person who is still experiencing aspects of God's anger, talking to God, pouring out his complaint to God. There's complexity there in that sense. So the title, an individual prayer and complaint to the Lord. And so then in the first two verses, we see his urgent prayer, which can be summarized in this way. Hear and answer me. Five different ways the psalmist says this. You can see the, the imperatives. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me. The first three focusing on hearing. And, and, and the psalmist is not unaware that God is omniscient. The notion of hearing is giving regard to, paying attention to. Of course God knows, but when God turns his face away, it's the notion of I am not regarding what you're saying. I'm not taking it into account. I'm not factoring it in. He's saying, no, no, turn your face towards me. Be attentive. Hear me and answer me. Incline to my ear. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. So the psalmist is very urgent. Five different times in different ways. He wants God to pay attention. He wants God to hear. And he wants God to act. And he wants him to do it quickly. And again, all of this can be poured out to God respectfully is holy and righteous. One of the nice things about these psalms is you can be this urgent with God. In other words, you may be tempted to think the only righteous way to bring your request before God is to say, well, Lord, you are wise and I'm not, and you know what is good and I do not, but 
Since you've asked me to tell you what I think might be helpful, perhaps you would consider in your wise economy and plan, perhaps it might be appropriate. It, I would appreciate it if, and then you pour out your suggestion. Now, that could be, from a right heart, a, a right way to pray. I'm not saying that's a wrong way to pray, but if you think that's the only way to bring your petitions before God, psalms like this psalm would say, no. Um, the psalms are filled with people crying out in urgency, and you can bring urgent requests to God in a right way. You can bring urgent requests to God in a way that you better explain yourself. You better count yourself. That's eventually where Job gets to, and the whirlwind comes and silences him. But one of the things I love about this is this psalm is, is visceral, and it's, it's emotional, and it's urgent, and it's raw, there's no feigned piety here. There's no feigned calmness. This is someone in great distress. A prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. This is the prayer of someone who, to use our modern vernacular, is at the end of their rope. This is the prayer of someone who's come to the end. What's Popeye say? I've, I've taken stands all I could stands and I can't stands no more. I mean, this is someone right at that edge. They're right at the edge. They're afflicted and they're growing faint. And so let's not minimize that. That's not some poetic imagery. This, this is real. This is someone right at the edge. This has gone on for some long period of time, and they feel like they're at the end of their rope. They feel at the end of their wits. They feel like they can't go any further. They are faint. Which then moves on to the actual lament itself. And I, I think we can summarize the point of the lament is this. Grief over the shortness of his days. There's a double inclusio here. We've talked about the inclusio. It's a literary feature where you bring up a topic at the beginning of a section, at the end of a section, and it helps you get some framing of what the main point of the section is. There's a double inclusio for verses 3 to 11, both emphasizing the same point. First, it begins and ends with a reference to my days. Verse 3, my days pass away like smoke. Verse 11, my days are like an evening shadow. Similar images. And the picture is my days are going up before me. My days are running out. They're disappearing. Smoke goes up and then it disappears. An evening shadow, eventually as the sun sets, everything's shadow. The shadow dissolves as everything becomes shadow. Right at the evening? That's the idea. My days are slipping through my fingers. My days are going up in smoke. My days are nearly done. That's the first. The second is the reference to withering grass. Another picture of frailty and shortness. Verse 4, my heart is struck down like grass and has withered. Verse 11, I wither away like grass. So we've got a double inclusio emphasizing the shortness, the brevity, the frailty of life. This psalmist is afflicted. We're to go through a detailed list of his afflictions. But the sum total of it all is my life is being consumed. I am coming to the end of my days. I don't know how much time I've got left. By the way, that's going to tie into the only real specific request of the psalm, which is in verse 24, if you jump down there. In verse 24, O my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Give me more time, the psalmist is praying. Do not let my days come to an end. So we're to go through the list of the complaint, but the overarching theme of the complaint is my days are running out. I don't think I've got long to live. I'd like more time. 
that can be a righteous request. Grief over that approaching demise can be righteous grief. I mean, one of, again, one of the things I love about the Psalms, these are spirit-filled people praying and talking to God, so whatever they're saying and expressing isn't wicked. And so these concerns can be right. Now, what I think you'll see in this psalm is that's not his overarching concern. And if his overarching concern, if his numero uno concern, if his greatest concern was give me more life, give me more days, I think that would be disproportionate. But it is a concern, and he comes back to it. I think what we'll find is instructive is what he focuses on to balance his heart out, to put that focus of his concern for shortness of days in the proper context, but I'm getting ahead of myself. But that is a valid and right concern, and grief over the approaching end of one's days can be a righteous and valid grief. The psalm makes that abundantly clear. Then he goes to detail his lament. So the overarching theme, the shortness of his days, and first, in verses 3 through 5, we see his despondency and sickness. Some type of sickness or ailment has befallen him. My days pass away like smoke. My bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and is withered. I forget to eat bread. He's lost his appetite. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. He's rapid weight loss, loss of appetite. We're going to see sleeplessness a little later. I mean, absolutely, this would qualify for clinical depression. Absolutely, no doubt in my mind. We don't know the nature of the physical ailment. It could be simply the grief is so great that he doesn't eat. And in not eating, he's malnourished and he's, his, his flesh wastes away. It could actually be some sort of consuming disease. We don't know. But the first part of his lament is his great despondency. And what I list as his sickness or his physical infirmity. Um, so that's part of it. And in that sense, it's, it's comparable to other passages in Scripture. Uh, Psalm 32, uh, where David um, confesses keeping sin secret and on his heart and not confessing it to God. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through all my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Salah. And again, we can... we. Not can. Our culture does rigidly define and distinguish between physical and the physical world and spiritual. And, and the thought that those things could bleed into each other, the thought that your physical sickness or ailment might have a spiritual cause is anathema. To, you're never going to find a doctor who's going to tell you that maybe, as according to Psalm 32, maybe the reason you're wasting away is there's some unconfessed sin in your life. The Psalms can deal with those concepts. Certainly not all, not suggesting that all such situations are that. But we are spiritual, physical beings. We are psychosomatic. We are um, immaterial and material. We are duplex. And what happens in one aspect of our being affects the other. And our, our thought life and our spiritual life can affect our bodies, vice versa. And so this psalmist is dealing with all of these together. There's going to be physical aspects to his lament. There's going to be spiritual aspects to his lament. And he doesn't neatly parse them all out. So his despondency and his sickness. Next, his isolation and his loneliness. His isolation and his loneliness. Look at verses 6 through 7. I am like a desert owl. 
How many times I've thought that to myself? No, no. We, we draw upon different metaphors. And where, where the psalmist lived in the Middle East in Israel, this is the picture, as far as I can tell, of isolation and loneliness. We might pick something different. But, but it's a clear indication. I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. And we have some other references to this owl. Owl is probably our best translation. We're not entirely certain what type of bird this is because, of course, the Bible's not giving us a zoological classification, so we're trying to take, okay, wing size, its habitat, what it does, what type of bird are they referencing. Owl's probably the best guess. Give you some other references. Um, Again, the emphasis of this bird, we'll just say it's the owl. It probably is right. Um, Is of this notion of something that dwells in a desolate place, something that dwells in a ruin Isaiah 34, 11 says, But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. It's talking about the future desolation of the land. The, uh, so the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. So how do you describe in vivid word pictures a desolate and abandoned land? You describe it as the dwelling of owls and porcupines, and hawks. Or Zephaniah 2.14, Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog. How desolate will the land be in the future? <laughs> even the owl will go there. So here's a picture of an animal that only dwells where there are not people around. So that's, that's the picture, that's the point. So that the psalmist has physical infirmity, physical symptoms, He's lost weight, his, his skin clings to his bones, he's lost his appetite. And, and coupled on top of that is isolation and loneliness. Isolation and loneliness. And again, we don't know the exact specifics, but that's one of the reasons that opens the psalm up to all of us. You felt isolated and lonely? You're in good company. You, you felt so sorrowful you lose your appetite? Godly men and women have been there, and God's got a song for you. God's got words for you to sing to him. I love the fact that the Bible takes these things seriously and doesn't sugarcoat it. His isolation and his loneliness, verses 6, six through 7. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. Okay, so we've got physical issues. We've got isolation and loneliness. Third, his enemies and his shame. All day, my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. And you read through the Psalms, and this is frequently one of the greatest sufferings of God's people, of David. Some have suggested they may be right that this Psalm was composed during the exile. Um, I, I think there's actually even some internal evidence to suggest that. That may work. And we know from other Psalms the great torment the Israelites felt when the Babylon, Babylonians would mock them. Hey, sing us one of those Israel songs you're so famous for. And so being taunted by foreigners being taunted by the enemy, mocked at God's apparent withdrawal of blessing, at God's apparent abandonment is, is painful. And it's, and it's not just once or twice, it's all day long. This, this person's calamity and suffering is so well known that they're used as a proverb and a curse and a byword. This is, this is no small matter. Listen to 
Psalm 71, 10 through 11, my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. And this theme of enemies, mocking enemies, talking about um, your suffering is, is a great suffering in and of itself. But it gets worse. We move then to his mourning and his chastening, verses 9 through 11. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. Why? Because of your indignation and anger. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. So we have mourning. The picture of ashes is associated with mourning. Sometimes mourning and repentance, but always mourning. Job sits in the ash heap and scrapes himself with pottery. And at the end of the book of Job, when God comes to rebuke him, Job says in Job 42.6, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He's, he's mourning. And there's a, there's a very real sense in which God has done this to him. And again, it's popular today for us to be tempted to say when bad things happen that that's not God. God does nice things. God does happy things. God does you know, sugar plums and, and puppies and you know, rainbows and sugar drops and chocolate. That's God. And all the bad stuff, that's from Satan. And in the book of Job, we know Satan can be involved in the bad stuff. But we ultimately know, as Job tells his wife... The Lord gave, the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The psalmist is under no disillusion. In fact, perhaps some of what makes this hard is he knows that if you track the cord back to the wall, God is there. This is from the Lord's hand. The way out of this, the way out of the suffering is not to, to avoid that conclusion. He says it plain as day, your indignation and anger, you have taken me up and thrown me down. Ultimately, this is from the hand of God. Now, there's a reference in God's anger that whatever God's doing is just. We don't know what the issue is. I think it's likely as simple as because I'm a sinner, because I sin, because that's my nature. It is, there's no complaint that God's unjust in his anger. There's just no fingering out of a particular sin. There's no notion that this is for a particular piece of wickedness. You know, Psalm 51, specifically, when David killed Uriah the Hittite, went into Bathsheba, that specific discipline was for that specific wickedness. But make no mistake, God is not unjust. God is not wrong when he disciplines and chastens us, even as we see no particular reason. I've been, in fact, I think I've been more faithful in the last month than I've been for a long time. That can also create vexation and sorrow and add to his complaint. I don't understand. He sees God's involvement in all of this. So that's his complaint. Summed up ultimately in the shortness of his life. He begins with it. He ends with it. You've cast me up. You've picked me up. You've cast me down. What's the end result? My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. There's his complaint. Now, the rest of the psalm is about what do you do with that? I said earlier, it's okay to feel this way. 
It can be good and right to feel this way. The question is, what do we do with it? Where do we direct our sorrow? And there's always the option of escapism. I'm just going to watch 32 Netflixes in a row and pretend it goes. Or there's the denial it's not real. Everything's fine. And it's sort of the British stiff upper lip, you know, just, it's okay. Hey, I'm okay. I'm good. That's not what the psalmist is doing either. There, there is there's a place to turn, and where he turns to is remarkable. It's, it's, it's right in my title, Finding Comfort in Affliction from an Infinite God. He's been so focused on his own finitude, his own shortness of life, his own frailty, his own impending doom, where he finds comfort in is looking at one who is unchanging and eternal. I said before, it's okay, it's good and right even to be grieved and vexed but one's approaching death, as long as that grief and that vexation is in its proper place of importance. And you can find that out by, do you still find exhilaration and joy in the eternal God and his purposes? Because that's where he turns to. What is his solution? Where does he find hope? He looks to a God who is eternal and who has plans for his people that are sure and certain and good. That's, that's the second point. His consolation, what's his consolation? You want it in one sentence? There is an eternal God who is good and does good for his people. That's my consolation. Let's let's read it. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity in Zion. It's time to favor her. The appointed time has come for your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayers of the destitute and does not despise their prayers. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord that he looked down from his holy height. From heaven the Lord looked on the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise when peoples gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord. This is remarkable. His comfort has nothing to do with his particular life and span. His comfort is entirely tied up in the eternal God and his good, certain purposes for his people and for Zion. It's just remarkable. That's, again, a way, you can, a way you can check whether your self-concern is too elevated. Is Are you able to take your eyes off yourself and find some joy and some comfort in God and who he is and his character and his plans for the future? That's, that's where this psalmist goes. So let's just look at this in three points. Three truths that he finds comfort and consolation in. One, the Lord abides forever, and will restore Zion. The Lord abides forever and will restore Zion. I showed you at the beginning the contrast between the psalmist's few short days and the Lord's eternal years, but that's how he begins this. But you, the contrast, but you, in contrast to me whose days wither like grass, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. The Lord rules forever, and you are remembered throughout all generations. The Lord abides, he reigns forever. And tied to that is his eternal plan to to deliver, take pity on, 
and establish Zion. Zion, of course, a reference to the major hill in the city of David, Jerusalem, formerly the Jebusite stronghold. And I think here it's used interchangeably with the city of Jerusalem. He'll talk about Jerusalem later. I don't, think, I don't think the psalmist has any real distinction in mind when he talks about God doing good to Zion, God doing good to Jerusalem. I think it's poetic ways of speaking of one and the same activity. Where does he turn in his great distress at the end of his rope, in his great grief, physical and spiritual and social, being alienated, being mocked? He turns to a God who is eternal, timeless, and without change, and who has declared a certain good future for Zion. That's it. It's almost like, yes, I might die. Yes, I'm withering on the vine, and I'm about to come to the end, but there's a God who does not wither. There's a God whose purpose is come to fruition, and he has promised good things for Zion. And he finds comfort and hope in that. Now, I told you before, he doesn't ultimately set aside his concern for his own life. He will return to it. But for now, his focus is on God and his plans. The Lord abides forever and will restore Zion. Now, this is where I think there is a suggestion that this is during the exile. Now, there are prayers, even in David's day, for a restoration or a rebuilding of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, at various times, waxes and wanes in its glory. But even the reference later to stones and dust really suggests that it's in ruins. And if that's the case, we are dealing with the Babylonian captivity, which, which even the, the focus in verse 13, you will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. May well even reference Jeremiah's prophecy. In Jeremiah 29.10, the Lord says, Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And amazingly, the prophet Daniel in Babylon's capital, the city of Babylon, has got a copy or heard a report of Jeremiah's prophecy. And in the book of Daniel, Daniel references those 70 years saying something similar. Now is the time. Listen to Daniel 9.2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And he goes on and he says to the Lord, Hey, Lord, those 70 years are almost up. What happens next? So this could be a reference even to that. It may not be. He may just be saying, Lord, it's been long enough. Come on. It's time to restore Zion. Or it could even be something similar to what Daniel prays. I know not. But regardless, he knows the Lord will do this. The Lord will do this. Verses 14 to 17, we see our second point. First, the Lord abides forever and will restore Zion. Second, the Lord will not forsake those who love him. The Lord will not forsake those who love him. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute, does not despise their prayer. Three subpoints here. First, the Lord's servants love what he loves. They love Zion. That's partly why the psalmist gets comfort in his affliction. Yes, he's afflicted. Yes, he's lonely. Yes, he's mocked. Yes, he's suffering the Lord's chastisement. But he loves Zion, and he knows that God has promised good things for Zion, and so he finds comfort. And we've talked before about 
finding comfort even in our own suffering as God blesses those we love in our body. The Lord blesses others, finding joy in that. Here, he's identified with God's people in God's city. We know from our study of Zechariah, the Lord will indeed rebuild Jerusalem. The Lord will indeed set foot on planet Earth and touch down on the Mount of Olives. He will fight for his people. He will rebuild their walls. All of this will happen, but what the psalmist is doing is he's finding some joy, not in the prospects of his own personal deliverance, but finding delight in his countrymen's and his cities, and his homelands, rebuilding. So the Lord will not forsake those who love him. Those who love the Lord loves the things the Lord loves. That's part of the logic. And there's that reference to stones and dust, which I think suggests the city may actually even be in ruins. Your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. And even though Jerusalem is currently in this pitiable state, whether it's the full destruction that Nebuchadnezzar wrought or whether it's some lesser destruction, despite that, Jerusalem has a great future. And now he's looking to the kingdom, what we call the the messianic kingdom. And again, we see again and again in Scripture, eschatology, believing, taking God seriously about his promises for the future is what gives hope today. Oftentimes we can be tempted to think eschatology is purposeless, it's esoteric, it's something theologians discuss, it's unimportant. It's how this guy at the end of his rope holds on. Yes, I'm at the end of my rope. Yes, I'm wasting away. Yes, my days are slipping through my fingers. But Jerusalem has a glorious future. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. Why? For the Lord builds up Zion. Directly tied to God's global honoring by every king on the earth is his restoration and rebuilding of Jerusalem. That's that's the clear logic here. And you can try to spiritualize this. This is about the church. In the day this is written, Jerusalem and Zion means one and one thing only. I think we can get from that the principle that you should love what the Lord loves and you should find comfort and hope in God's promises for his people. Sure, that's all true. It can be on top of the reality that God has promised to rebuild Zion. It cannot be in place of that reality. And so despite the fact that Jerusalem's stones are fallen, its dust is pitiable, look at the glorious future it has. The nations, God's plan to be glorified by all the nations of the world, the kings of the earth, is centered around his restoration of Jerusalem. And I would add in sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to reign from his father's throne in Jerusalem. Of course, we get that from other passages. But that is, that is what he finds comfort in. His servants love Zion. The nations will fear the Lord who builds up Zion. And the Lord has not despised their prayers. He regards the prayers of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. So part maybe of his comfort is this. I'm in ruins. I'm languishing, but so is Jerusalem. And God hears the prayers of his people praying for that city. Perhaps he hears my prayers as well. Something like that. The third glorious truth he holds on to. The first, the Lord abides forever. Second, the Lord will not forsake those who love him. Third, the Lord will be praised by future generations. And again, I, I think the logic is I may be passing from the scene. I may be going the way of all flesh, but the Lord has established praise for himself from future generations. Look at verses um, 
18 to 22. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. That they may look down from his holy height. From heaven, the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners to set free those who are doomed to die. That they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise. When peoples gather together and Kingdoms to worship the Lord. First point, I, mean, I got to looking at the clock here. I got to that can't not be the right time. I'm going to pick up pace. Um, first point to notice: God's word becomes the foundation of future praise. What instrumentality or what through what agency does the psalmist envision future generations coming to praise God? Through something that's been written. Don't miss that. Through what agency? How will future generations come to praise what God has done? Because something was written, that's how. Let this be recorded. Why? For a generation to come. So that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. God intends for his word to be the thing that generates our praise. God intends for his word to be the primary place we learn of who he is and what he has done. Yes, we, I, you can tell me what he's done in your life. But if you want to know what God has done throughout history and who he is, you go to his word and his word alone. The psalmist says, let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. I, I may be going the way of all flesh. I may be going to the grave. But others will praise the Lord and worship him. What specifically is he focusing on that God is praiseworthy for? There's so much we could talk about. His power and creation, his wisdom. Here, it's his mercy and his condescension. He is mindful of his people's suffering and delivers them. And the contrast, again, is this. In contrast to all of flesh, which is like grass that withers. I mean, James tells us, you're like, you're like a mist. You get a little air freshener, glade air freshener. That's, that's you. That's me. We're gone. God endures forever. This God who endures forever, look down from his holy height. You know, the picture, we're so small compared to him, but he looked down from his holy height. From heaven, the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners. This great and eternal God, he cares about the suffering of his people to set free those who are doomed to die. That they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord. Again, another suggestion that we're dealing with the Babylonian captivity. They could reference other things, but I think probably the best fit would be the Babylonian captivity to release them from captivity in, Zion, in Babylon, to bring them back again to Zion, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise. And peoples gather together in kingships to worship the Lord. And he does all of this that they might praise him before the nations. So again, he sees the restoration, the rebuilding, the glorification of Jerusalem as a key component in the Lord being praised and gloried and feared by all nations and all kings. Okay. That's his consolation. So he, he pours out his lament. He pours out his complaint. There's real suffering. There's physical suffering. There's emotional suffering. There's spiritual suffering. And he takes comfort and solace in a God who is eternal, who has made promises 
to Israel and to his people that will be kept, that will be fulfilled. He has not the slightest doubt that God will do these things. Even though Jerusalem lies in a heap, it's dust and stones, he is rejoicing in its glorious future. Until the 1940s and 50s, it was very hard for people reading these passages to take them in seriously. Now, it's easier to conceive of this happening. But make no mistake, it will happen. This brings us verses 23 to 28, his confidence. And now he's going to synthesize these two themes together. The Lord's eternality and his own suffering. He's, I think, balanced himself out. I think he's put his sorrow in its proper perspective against an eternal God with eternal purposes of global glorification and blessing to his people. And in light of that, I think he realizes his suffering isn't as big as it may have seemed earlier, but he still returns to it. Just because it's not as important doesn't mean it's been jettisoned entirely. Putting your concerns in the right proportion doesn't mean you don't bring them before the Lord. It just means make sure it's not bigger than it really is. Just make sure what you're upset about, you're not making too important. And a good check for that is taking some time to focus on who God is and what he's promised and what he will do. Okay, now let's talk about your concern. He does exactly that. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. And again, he doesn't correct his understanding of God's agency. Whatever needed to be added to his thinking, whatever needed to be altered in his thinking, whatever needed to be supplemented in his thinking, it is still the same that you did this. He says that in um, verse 10, because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. And he hasn't moved a bit off that point. You have broken my strength in mid-course. He has broken my strength in mid-course, I'm sorry. He has shortened my days. So if the fundamental thing he's concerned about is the shortness of his days, that's from the Lord. The Lord's done that. He brings out his prayer. The Lord has done this to him. That's point one. The Lord has done this to him. Again, this is the testimony of Job. Even as in the book of Job, we know Satan's agency. And yet, at the end of round one, where Satan takes his wealth and his family, Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the author of Job I think expecting us to say, no, no, Job, it wasn't the Lord, it was Satan. Because, of course, Job doesn't have any access to that first chapter where, where we see the scene in heaven. And in case we're thinking, no, 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 Job, Job, it's not the Lord, it's Satan. The narrator says in verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And then round two, Job is robbed of his health. And his wife gives him this counsel. Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. There's a way of recognizing God's agency that isn't complaining, that isn't um, petulant, that isn't rebellious. No, it's a reality. God could have stopped this. God could have altered this. God could have changed this. Could he not? He didn't. So at least in that sense, it's from him. 
But despite the fact that he recognizes God's anger at him, despite the fact that he recognizes God has done this, that does not stop him from praying that God changes. Again, frequently, our knee-jerk reaction to the sovereignty of God was that this is from God, and I guess we shouldn't pray for it to stop. And I get how there's assertive logic to that. It's just not a logic that I see show up in Scripture. I mean, unless this guy is contradicting himself in two verses, look at this, verse 23. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh, my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days. You've done it. Please stop doing it. That's what he's saying. You can recognize the sovereign hand of God in your life and pray that he sovereignly change it. That's okay. You can do that in a right attitude. It's not as though believing in the sovereignty of God somehow forces us into a position where we don't ask for anything because God's in control and he knows what's best. That's just not what we see in Scripture. The psalmist is simultaneously able to affirm the sovereignty of God over his suffering, the sovereignty of God in his sorrow, and cry out to a God who even in some degrees is angry with him, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. He calls upon the Lord to prolong his days. And then point C, and this is the the climax of this psalm. This is the portion of the psalm that's quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, which we will not get to this morning, but in the ABF, I think we will. Because the author of Hebrews is going to use these next verses to teach us something about Jesus. And I don't think Psalm 102 is explicitly messianic, but you'll have to stick around for the ABF to see where that's going. But just look at this. Majestic statement of God's eternality. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are worked, the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. They will pass away, but you are the same. Your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Three quick points. And, and I think what's happening is this. He's been so focused on his own frailty that his life is like grass that withers. He's now stepping back and realizing that compared to God, all of creation is like that. Compared to God, Orion is grass that withers. Compared to God, the Atlantic Ocean is a mist that appears for a short time. Compared to God, the the Andromeda galaxy is, is a whiff of smoke. Look, look at the language. The heavens were made. First, he made them. He pre-exists them. He, he's before them. And he created the heavens and the earth. From of old, he created the heavens and the earth. So he, he gets, God's before them. Before the oldest star and planet, there's God. And he will utterly outlast them all. He will utterly outlast them all. And again, this is getting your suffering into perspective. <laughs> your years are shortened. You feel like you're a grass that appears for a day and withers. So is Mount Everest. So is the deepest sea. So is the farthest star. They will perish, but you will remain they will all wear out like a garment. You ever have a shirt that's so old that it's just fallen apart? I got one. It's a New Hampshire shirt. And 
and it used to be a shirt I could wear out in public. And then my wife informed me it couldn't, I couldn't wear it in public. And then it lost its sleeves and it became a bike riding shirt. And I was wearing it yesterday and it was like, hold, I mean, this thing is like, like mesh now. And, and it's, I felt kind of silly. And yes, I was bike riding yesterday with Jake Hopper and I'm like, yeah, this may be the last outing for this shirt. <laughs> the shirt had worn out, right? You ever had like a favorite shirt or blanket like that? The universe, the farthest star, the sun, the moon will all wear out like that. And God will be untarnished, unwrinkled, eternal and unchanging. He will utterly outlast them all. And here's the amazing truth. Look at verse 20. Here's the amazing truth. Your and my days may come to an end. We, we will face death unless the Lord returns. But his people will dwell secure with him. That, that's the amazing reality. We've established the infinitude of God. We've established the inter- eternity of God. And yet there's a people who are with him. And if God is that eternal and they're with him, dwelling before him, what does that say about them? They're enduring too. They're lasting too. That's, the, that's where he ultimately ends up. As will his people who dwell secure with him. So we set up this massive contrast. You made the heavens and the earth. They're going to wear out. You will endure. You are the same. Your years have no end. And you've taken under your wing a people who will go with you. Your children and your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. And that's ultimately the hope you have. Your life may be awful right now. You may be suffering and feeling like the owl in the waste places. Your bones wasting away. Tears or your drink, your appetite gone. The enemy taunting. God's fierce hand on you and discipline. And you can cry out and ask for that to change. And that's fine. That's good. And he may. He is merciful. He looks down from heaven. He looks at his people. But here's your ultimate hope, that you will dwell with a God who will live forever, and you will dwell with him in eternity. You will dwell with him in eternity. That, that is the hope that no psychotherapist is going to offer. That is the hope that no psychotropic drug can give. An eternal God who you can dwell with for eternity. Let's pray. Lord God, we... Um, are so thankful that you are mindful of us. You do look down from heaven. You do hear our cries. You do take pity on us. You have promised great things for your people. You've promised great things for Israel. You've promised great things. But ultimately, you are our home. You are our resting place, and we will dwell with you forever. And that is our hope. That is our comfort and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.